I would rather be confident in my discipline than confident in my decisions. Ooh, that is going to marinate in my brain for a while. Welcome to Tradeoffs, where product habits Heaton Shaw and ProfitWell's Patrick Campbell discuss tech through a product-first mindset to inspire you to think differently. This week, they talk about market data. What got you here won't get you there. So usually what got you to an MVP is like crappy code, sometimes code on top of code. Road mapping. Customer development and understanding those pain points does not mean you have perfection in terms of data. And also some valuable framework and tactics. You have to be confident in your discipline, not confident in your decisions, if that makes sense. Right? Because your decisions are going to be wrong a lot of the time. What's up? How much, man? How you doing? Living the dream. Working on what I want to. Nice. How about you? Just living the COVID paradise. I'm going. I'm going to Mexico tomorrow. Amazing. Awesome. Yeah, I uh, wedding or something or just hanging out. It's a. It's like a. I don't know why I got looped in, but it's a D 2 C exec hangout. Cool. D 2 C. So I'm not D 2 C okay. at all. So I'm like the SaaS data. Yeah, you. Person. Yeah, you are. You. You talk about subscription. Oh no, we, all I, day. I, am, I mean, you, I am tangential. You probably have more nuggets to drop. Oh, of course. More nuggets to drop than most people. Like you're gonna do on this. I call, totally. This call too. I totally do. It's just one of those things where it was like. Oh, cool. You guys all like have these interesting brands. I have a, uh, a software product or two. Yeah, it'll be good. So going there, um, I'm going a little early. I'm just going to work from there for a couple of days um, just to work on some stuff that could use a little distance, if that makes sense. Always. It'll be good yeah. to hang out a little bit. What's funny or ironic, I should say, is I, I hate that weather so much. <laughs> so it's going to be me in an air-conditioned room <laughs> with a good view. And uh, not going outside at all in the humidity or the heat. Well, you're not going to wear your shorts and, and oh no, I'll wear shorts because it'll your just shorts be, and your flip flops. Yeah, it'll just be unbearable <laughs> not to wear shorts. But yeah, it'll be it'll be quite the scene, uh, quite the scene. So, that's but yeah, awesome. I'm excited for that. Yeah, I don't think there's anything else that's exciting. That's exciting enough. So, yeah, I had some dope chai. I texted you about it, but I just want to point it out. You did, and fashion. you said it was spicy. Yeah, man, I, <laughs> I can't so wait. Here's the thing, I think Salt Lake City. It's definitely underrated for coffee because of the whole LDS don't drink coffee thing. But the coffee scene here is so much better than Boston. Like the number of boutique or like small roasters here is kind of wild because there's a lot of West Coast influence and there's just more West Coast like coffee roasters than there are East Coast. And it's kind of shocked me because I started, we went on a little coffee tour this weekend and I was like, oh my word, like there's so much better stuff out here than there was in Boston. And so... Yeah, that's wow. another another little fun fact in, in my diary basically here for you. I like it. What do you want to talk about today? Talking about prioritization, I think, right? Yeah, uh, I'm really excited to talk about this. Every time I ask people about product development and ask them what their main challenge is, at the end of the day, it all back, goes back to product prioritization. And I think even more specifically, it's like, what do you do after the MVP? Whether it's the MVP of a feature or MVP of a whole product if you're much earlier stage. As we were talking about this earlier, I think there's a lot that goes into being on point with what you build and in what sequence you build it in. So that's one area where I think we both have a lot of expertise and a a lot to share there. And then the other area, which is equally important. And if you run a product team or have a product team at your company, it ends up being relevant, which is like things like uh, this line of like, what got you here won't get you there. So usually what got you to an MVP is like crappy code, sometimes code on top of code or random, random things. Cause you kept tweaking, you kept changing, you kept doing things to find it, but then you end up with this mess, which got you there, 
but now you got to clean it up so it won't get you to the next point, right? So it got you here, but it won't get you there. Um, and, and that's the way I like to talk to people about that side of it, which is like, well, your speed of iteration slows down typically. How are you going to speed it back up? How are you going to get back to that iteration cycles you had early on when you really didn't know what product market fit looked like for you? And those are, those are the struggles that I hear commonly that I think would just would be valuable to break down as well. So we can keep it like two parts, right? Like one part is just like, how do you know what to build? And the other part is how do you deal with all the issues related to building fast and then finding yourself with fit, but then that risk of losing it because you can't. Yeah. I think the, to back up or set the stage a little bit too, this problem is getting harder. And I think that a lot of people thought it would get easier. And just to give some context, so we have this like thing we call the value matrix, which is from a non-visual standpoint for most folks that are listening. It's basically just a, a two-by-two grid. You put relative value of features from a customer perspective on the x-axis, and you put willingness to pay on the y-axis. And it's just a measure of like if I have a feature or set of features and I'm talking to a particular customer segment – are they valuable and willing to pay for those types of features? Is it something that not a lot of people are willing to pay, but enough are that it's an add-on and, and so on and so forth? And so what we did is we did a study with about 1,300 product leaders. And we basically asked them after explaining the grid um, and showing it to them and asking, checking for understanding. We had them put however many features from their roadmaps on the grid. Like, where were they? And most people, it was like, oh, of course, we're building and driving value, a lot of add-ons, uh, defending the core features, these types of things. No no one said they were building, like, weak features because, you know, it's a product leader who's, you know, it's rare you meet a non-confident uh, product leader, right? But then we went out to about a million, I think a million two uh, different customers or users of these products or prospective users of these products and using ProfWell's price intelligence software, which measures like actual value and willingness to pay and these types of things. What we found is that there was a huge disconnect between what the product leaders thought they were building and what was actually being built. And it wasn't always like this. It's actually gotten further and further over time. So if a product leader thinks that they're building something that's like a 10 on a value scale, it used to be that the customer was at an eight and now the customer is at like a two, like relative to it. And, and, and it's not because wow. we're dumber. I think we're actually more intelligent. It's just that the stakes have changed, right? So, and, and I think Heaton, you, you understand this more than anybody, like when you're building products in like the early 2000s, it was kind of obvious what you should build because there just was so much strenuous stuff to get something out there, right? The roadmaps kind of built themselves pretty quickly. Totally. Um, there was just less less noise too. So it's weird. Your point is counterintuitive. You'd think now that there's more software out there, it's much easier to figure out what to build this. Actually, it's no, harder to determine what's valuable. Because customers don't know what... Yeah. Yeah, customers can't be as clear as they used to be. It, it's The signal is much well, harder to get. parity is... It's much more obvious, right? So, like, if you and I were going to build a CRM tomorrow, like, we kind of know what 18 months of the, of the roadmap look like, right? Now... We're probably yep. going to want to think through, like, how do we actually differentiate? Do we need to differentiate all these other things? But you're still going to have to build that 18 months of features somewhere, right? And, and you're probably going to have to build it, like, sooner than later. I think the issue is, is that because of the noise and also because, like, the baseline aspects of product are kind of known. And then in addition to that, the speed of product is so much faster, so it used to be, like, I only have X number of hours of engineering because infrastructure is hard to build. I don't have all these fancy DevOps tools and all these other things. So all of a sudden, it's like, boom, like, we're going to have to allocate towards this, this amount. 
Now we've got expanded engineering hours, both because of hiring, but also because of like speed of tooling. And all of a sudden it's like, I don't know what to build or what's actually going to be valuable. And, and the last kind of kick in the face, and, and we can kind of move on to more practical matters is what is valuable is shifting dramatically, very quickly. And what I mean by that is you used to be able to put a login screen on a database and you were looked at as like a god because they were using a really crappy spreadsheet and the UX was terrible. And now I have this cloud thing where I have a, a thing I can log into and I don't need to have it on my desktop and all these other things, right? Now it's like the expectation has changed where the consumer is actually like pickier. And we've seen this because um, willingness to pay for a lot of core features or traditional add-ons like integrations and analytics and things has gone down about 70% over the past eight years. And it's not because like, the utility has gone down. It's just because like it's so expected, right? Um, and NPS scores, which is kind of interesting, have gone down almost uh, uh, 10x actually, mainly because people are just expecting things that once were really, really valuable. And when we look at certain features and we track them through a value matrix, again, we're on, on audio, so it's a little bit hard to like visualize this, but we're seeing that features like we talked about last week like or two weeks ago, like two-factor authentication or SSO, yep. they used to be add-ons. Then they would slowly move to a differentiable feature. Then they would slowly move to a core feature, right? Well, that velocity, when we measure it, it used to take like eight years or at least a velocity, right? You know, meaning we've actually had less than eight years, but hopefully you get the, 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 the reference. Now the velocity is like two years. And there will be features that stay in each of those buckets, like file sync and share. It's going to be a core feature for a lot of these products for a long time, right? But all the other like things that were driving value, those things are moving to core really, really quickly because of all the factors that we talked about. So I think it's fascinating that this problem is becoming harder and harder and, and um, just wanted to give a bunch of historical or data context that we had. That's great. Again, it's very counterintuitive. Like You'd think it would be easier. But it's definitely not easier and there's a lot more noise and a lot of the things that, you know, companies have built, we're all building, you know, one thing related to this is I, I feel like we all are keep continuously building the same things over and over again across many different companies, right? And so my bias always tends to be like, how can we build the right thing that's different? That isn't the same as everybody else, unless those are the things that we really need. And that's where like the analysis that you folks do and the way that you think about objectively being able to map. These are the things that are core features. These are the add-ons. These are the things that nobody probably needs ever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I put it like that, but you have your better descriptions of it. Th those things help you actually create a proper sequencing for the features you're going to build. And, and that's why, you know, I wouldn't even call it a roadmap. I would just say that like, you want to know what problems are worth solving and which ones are not worth solving. And the only way to do that before you actually ship them and let people use them is go figure out like what matters to your customers and you need systems of doing that. This is the piece of product prioritization that people miss. Today, people think about things like what they call a rice score and things like that to help you actually prioritize from a list of things in terms of what impacts it going to have and things like that, which I think is you know reasonable and it's good when you're deep in the process and you have lots of options and really need to narrow it down. Those are more process oriented things. The stuff I love about how you think about it and what I think people really need to hear is that there's a whole strategic side. It's all product strategy ultimately, not the execution with roadmaps and prioritization. What it's really about is like, where is the pain that a customer has that's worth doubling down on and for what type of customer? And those are the pieces that actually are 
make the roadmap easy, make the prioritization not even easy. Like you almost don't need to do it if you know what the core problem is that your product solves for people and then are able to double down on that in the right ways for the right people. So the part, again, that's not really discussed is product strategy. How do you decide what to build? And the things that cloud that up are the market, the competition, and also your, as a product leader and people executing on product, your ability to actually be so close to that customer that you have an understanding of like what the core is of what you're solving for them, right? Again, we've talked about this in a bunch of different ways because like if you pick the core right, then your category, whether you're creating one or you're in an existing one, ends up being super obvious and clear. Yeah, but if you don't, then you're dancing around the whole topic. We're, we're glossing over something and I think we're going to get into it in the next section, but I think it's important to talk about it here too, is like we're kind of implying, because I think you and I believe it in a good way, like the whole concept of customer development, right? Like understanding the pain Correct. points, understanding the value. And I think that it's worth a little bit of a tangent to talk about like, I think that there's a giant misconception. I think you and I have talked about this on the podcast already of like what customer development is, right? Because- it's really easy. Yes. What I think you're saying in, in reading between the lines, and you can verify if I'm, I'm speaking for you incorrectly or not, customer development and understanding those pain points does not mean you have perfection in terms of data and it's telling you exactly what to do with a 99.999% confidence level or just so perfect that it hedges it and you guaranteed that you got the right answer. And I think that that there's this all or nothing concept when it comes to understanding pain points in these types of things. And what I want to get out there is, yeah, we're going to talk about, you know, some tactics and things like that to like understand roadmap. But at the end of the day, like you still have to earn your paycheck and you still have to figure out like, okay, well, this is what I'm seeing in the market. This is what I heard from some customers. I think that there's a bridge here between where the market's going and what they're saying in terms of their pain points. And I'm not making a $10 million decision, so I'm not going to go deeper on it, but I'm making a $1 million decision. And I feel like we've done enough research for a $1 million decision, right? Like that's that's the probably not stated openly, but that's like the calculus that you still have to go through. And I, I just think it's worth pointing out because I, I can already hear people like, you know, yelling at the podcast and just being like, well, you're never going to know. Like customers aren't going to tell you what they want. You know, Steve Jobs said, uh, you know, the person who said customer's always right is, you know, probably a customer or like the freaking, I was about to swear, but that like, gosh darn, like Henry Ford quote, which fun fact, Henry Ford probably didn't actually say like most actual historical, like, ah, like it's it insane. No, this is the best because people think the customer's going to tell you what to build for them. Yeah. The customer is not going to tell you what solution you should be building. They might say it like a solution. They might point to another product that has something similar. That's not their job. Your job is to dig underneath that and figure out what problems do they have that you need to solve for them. They are not solution people. Like your customer's never going to sit there and be like to that whole Henry Ford and the Steve Jobs stuff, they're not going to sit there and tell you what to build. I agree, 100%. But they will sit there and tell you exactly what problems they have and what frustrates them. And so it's almost like they're not even going to tell you what they need. That's your job. They're not going to tell you what they need. They're not going to write up a solution with a spec like you need to do for you. If you think they are and you're listening to them in that way, you're going to build the wrong things. What you're really doing, and this is the art, is... You're getting these inputs, support tickets, 
any kind of emails coming in, people tweeting about it and and saying stuff about what they think you should do. And then you're going to kind of hopefully customer development properly. These are all just inputs that help you identify what you should be solving for, for them, not taking what they say and just building it. Yeah. Right. That never worked. It didn't even work in the past because that's where the prioritization issues come in because then you're like, well, they said these 10 things. Yeah. Now we do these 10 things. Now we're going to put these 10 things. Please. I'm already doing it. You started it. The Henry Ford thing. Back at you. I just have to. You must have just Googled it too. I love this. No, I didn't because I, you have no idea because a lot of my pricing talks, it's like, hey folks, ending your prices in nines and putting your most expensive tier on the left side of, of your pricing page, like you read in some damn medium article that's not pricing. Like that's not what pricing strategy is. And then, so inevitably it leads to, you have to like measure the market while you're, no one's going to tell you, well, you have to ask in the right way. Well, Henry Ford said, you know, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. And, and here's, here's the thing that you don't understand about the Henry Ford quote. And, and now I'm just ranting about this in no context of anything that you said. He, it's basically one, probably didn't say it Two, people don't realize that Ford got smoked like after that, that quote was apparently said, because Ford came along and was like, you know, you can get in any color as long as it's black, right? You know, that's actually true what happened and basically said, this is the model. He took a very like Jobsian 1984, like concept of like how he was going to build the car or his, his particular car. GM went interesting. They started talking to customers and prospective customers and they started learning like, it wasn't, hey, I want a different color. It was, oh, I don't like that my car looks like my neighbor's car. Like that was actual research that came out of, out of their, their, their market research. And so GM was like, well, we should have different colors. We should have different models of cars, right? And GM basically in this time period was able to smoke forward and grow an incredible amount, not because they just did exactly what customers said. They still had designers. They still had essentially product people thinking about what things looked like, but because they, they looked at those pain points and those values that their customers had and Ford basically doubled down and said, I'm only going to build these types of cars. I'm going to say exactly what the what is needed um, and the color is only going to be black and then they finally were like oh that's probably a bad idea and this is where they started developing different cars so that's my little rant that i've said so many different times in so many different talks so i just wanted to get it on the record so yeah sorry sorry for that tangent it is no I'm, i love your tangents i mean that's why we're here duly noted uh the rant and in, in, in a good one probably one of the better rants i've heard from you <laughs> i gotta get better at ranting then but anyways so that's that's a big thing is like you, you got to talk. You got to talk to your customers. Again, you're not doing what they say. You're, you're like a prosecuting attorney where you can't lead the witness, but you have to like still get information. I think that's, that's the big thing, but, but get us back on track. No, we're on track. Okay. I, 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 this is the stuff I wanted to talk about. I, I wanted to jam with you on this problem that I see that everybody has. I think getting back on track would just be like, why is it so hard after an MVP to keep building? I think that's, that's the big, like, existential question that I think people ask themselves or don't know to ask themselves because the pattern I've seen, and this is in my own companies and other people's is basically, it's almost like a repetitive, never ending pattern that I see across the board, which is basically you build stuff, early stuff, you don't account for tech debt or future things you need to build. Cause if you did that, you'd probably get that stuff wrong anyway. And so then you end up building, tweaking, iterating, Engineers are just adding stuff to the code. Nobody's really thinking about 
the future because if you did, you'd paralyze yourself and not be able to actually iterate and execute. And what I mean by the future is like, what are the five features we need to build on top of this in the future? Or, you know, is it scalable? <laughs> Things like that. But then you hit product market fit all of a sudden, usually all of a sudden, and then you land in the spot where you're like, oh no, people are using the thing we built, a giant mess on the back end, on the front end, whatever it is. And on top of that, their needs are becoming more clear than ever for us because we gave them something they actually wanted. So now they're spilling about the new problems they have and the next problems they have, which is always what happens, right? And then you can't iterate for the life of you because you have all this tech debt, you have all this piled up baggage that's dragging you down. And so then you start having all kinds of discussions like, can we rewrite the whole thing now? Like that's probably the main discussion. Can we rewrite the whole thing? Can we afford to? Usually the answer is no. So then what do you do? That's where like in a lot of ways the prioritization thing comes up for me. Because if you haven't done all the stuff we just talked about, then you actually don't know what's worth working on. And then you're stuck again because you can't rewrite the whole thing fast enough to be able to iterate it in most cases because you don't have enough engineers. So then don't even get me started about the engineering recruiting you have to do at that point, right? In order to build enough things because that's a reality too. So this is the conundrum that I see all of us get into repeatedly because in some ways it's by design. By moving fast towards product market fit, you create so much tech debt and baggage that is necessary to move fast, but then you get in the spot where you can't build. And then you are at risk of losing product market fit just because you can't iterate fast enough. Because I'm thinking through our own journey, I'm thinking of this concept of like understanding the right constraints. Because I think that if your constraint is just straight up growth, it's basically a recipe for your entire tech stack to have a lot of debt, right? If you're like, hey, it's got to be cheap or it's got to be fast or, you know, the classic like or it's got to be purely accurate or whatever it is, right? Because for us, it was the situation where being a free product, a data-heavy product actually helped us a lot with tech debt because we essentially were like, we can't just infinitely spend money on like databases. You know, we're going to have to figure out how to do this somewhat right early on. It actually helped us scale even better because we would have, you know, Canva was the first really big user to come on board. And they basically said, hey, all of your competitors just turned us away because they're refusing to ingest the data. And we're like, we will ingest your data and we'll do it for free. And all of a sudden it was just like, we, we scrambled to like always have a better database structure. I, I don't know. Like, is there a way you can do that organically? That did us, or, or non-organically. For us, we did it organically because it was just the what led us there. We kind of have the same exact story over here. And I think some of it's luck, right? Canva was a customer you got and you were lucky to get that customer in some ways, right? They came to your door, right? We had a customer, can't talk about who they are because we have NDAs and things, but we had a customer that was extremely high volume. And that was literally like in our first three to five customers for for Nira, which is which is my company right now. The name's out. I saw that on Twitter. The name is out. I don't know yeah. when that happened, but I'm yeah. like, cool. Nira.com, N-I-R-A. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yes, I'm excited. And the conversation was straight up from our head of engineering, like, hey, what do you want to do? We can't support this customer. What do you want to do? And I had this almost dead stare. Steve, no. You go figure it out. No. We're going to support this customer. That's not an appropriate answer in this case. And then I just explained the math. I'm like, this size customer, our ability to handle them equals so much more the second we can do it. And so we can't wait. Steve, we actually have to 
figure this out. Please go figure it out. <laughs> I'm not in control of the code or the engineers. You are. Please go figure it out. It's important. But him and I have been on this journey multiple times where like it wasn't tenuous. It wasn't a debate. It was just me literally saying, it's him just asking, hey, do I need to do this? Right? Because I don't want to do it. I don't want to scale to the level that we need to for this customer. And it was, it's massive scale, just like Canva style, where like, I'm sure other people would have turned them down if they were building what we were for them. And nobody is today. So thankfully for us in the short run, we're good there. Yeah, for now. And so we did it. If I were a first time founder, I probably would have taken, you know, that rule that people say, don't try to scale too early. Don't go build for really large customers early, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, nah, we wouldn't be here today if we didn't figure that out. Because now we can knock out customers of their size and larger and are confident. And we have the tech to do it. And, And that required us to focus on just scaling. And then all kinds of other things happened behind it that I'm sure happened for you where you're like, oh, that was the best decision ever, even though it was a tough call and it meant all these other things didn't get done. The right decision is so hard. And that's where I kind of like want to point this out, like this whole like binary look at it, because I don't know if it was the right decision because it's like that definitely took a bunch of resources and they're a banner customer of ours. They've used every product that we have, which is amazing and awesome. But it is one of those things that you're like, was more feature parity going to be better? Was it not? And then on the other side, it's like, well, Canva made it so that we can ingest Fortune 50 companies. And if we didn't do the work with Canva, we wouldn't have been able to do it for Fortune 50 companies or ClassPass, Masterclass, like these companies that have very, very high volume of customers, which, you know, basically expands our, our database needs. So I don't know. I think it's super tough and I think it's more about, and I think you've said this before, so apologies if I'm stealing from you, but like it's less about the outcome ironically and it's more about the fastidiousness of the process. Like yes. if we looked at it and yes. we're just like, okay, it's okay. 10 out of 10 times, we still would have made the same decision. Turns out it's the wrong decision. That's fine. Do we need to adjust our process? Do we need to adjust our discipline? No, Right. And we're kind of running into this right now because we're we're trying to figure out, we know like the retained roadmap, we know it like really well for the next 12 to 18 months, right? We also know we need to be a multi-product company. And so we're working on like, what's the additional product? And it's kind of like, we're in this like weird, like sophomore slump right now where nothing's good enough and nothing's like great enough and all this other stuff, but we're still struggling to go through the process. And I was, I told Faco the other day, I was like, I think we're just overthinking it. I think we're like, this thing we kind of know the spaces we want to be in. We know what a product could look at. We just need to start putting pen to paper essentially. And like, yes, if it sucks, we'll, we'll kill it. Like we'll kill it. Right. Like we now are in a position where we will absolutely kill it, but we got to get moving. And I think that's the fastidiousness of like what we're doing. Okay. Let's get it in front of 10 people. Let's get the envision mocks going. Let's, let's, you know, do all these things. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's the thing I think not enough people are doing is they don't have the discipline and then, this is why I love not to, I was about to wind down there, but actually someone, I love Brian Belfour for the sense of like, I think he's too disciplined sometimes in how he thinks about things. But like that dude, when he, he left HubSpot and he was looking for his next thing, like the amount of like discipline he had, he killed, definitely killed like three or four product ideas. And I was like, dude, this is an amazing product. You should go for it. And he's like, he went through his process and he's like, no, because these three things is what I'm looking for. Like, you just don't find that in enough growth and product thinkers, I think, because they end up being like project management or marketers, basically. So I don't know, another rant. So I'll, I'll shut up for a second here, but yeah. No, it's a, it's a good rant. I, I think you can't do product well without a tremendous amount of discipline. Yeah. And this is where 
I think the confidence you mentioned of product people either goes right or wrong. You have to be confident in your discipline, not confident in your decisions, if that makes sense, right? Because your decisions are going to be wrong a lot of the time, but your discipline of how you evaluate what to build or whether it's working or not, if you already built it, is really the key. I'd rather be really disciplined and confident about my discipline as a product person than confident about my decisions. And so I actually think that's a very, very valid point that is very underrated in terms of tweet that right now. Yeah, in terms of tweet whatever you want in terms of startups, because I equally admire Brian Balfour for that. I have not found anybody else that's that disciplined about choices and what to build, what not to build, why. And it's very like prescriptive when it comes down to process. Because really discipline is just about being prescriptive about process. Like, you know, you're just literally sticking to a process and not deviating because you know how well it works for you. My only counterpoint is something that I, I like to say about some of the discoveries we've made and some of my style, which is we think about these things as bets. So if we go do customer development, we figure out bets. So what we did recently is pivot from a document search tool to a tool that's oriented around document access control. And that document access control idea was in our heads from literally the first batch of interviews for the enterprise search product or the document search, whatever you want to call it. We're calling it document search right now because uh, we don't want to crap on every single enterprise search product that's out there trying to make it work. Uh, so we just call it document search. But anyway, the idea for me with the stuff is that if you are too disciplined, you don't open yourself up to the bets and the discoveries. So there is there is that counterpoint I'll make. And for us, like we we're probably... 70 to 80% disciplined on process and things like that. And then another 20 to 30% are trying to find bets that we might not understand yet. So that bet was sitting there, that bet of who has access to my documents and solving those problems oriented around it was sitting there for honestly, as long as this company has been around, which is about three years now, we just didn't work on it seriously, but it was always a bet that we were making and trying to double down on our understanding of it because it was important to us. And we kept hearing it over and over again. It, it wasn't clear signal. It was just sitting there and we kept hearing things about it. And then when it came time to really change directions or evaluate it, it was already sitting there. We already had it. There were already prototypes. There was already learnings. And those weren't distractions because they were always about convos we were having about the core product we were building. Someone asked me today, because I did a whole tweet storm about it and stuff, because today was an official day. We wanted to announce it. Someone asked me, how long did it take? So if you ask Brian, and again, very clear, objective thinker, if you ask Brian, he could tell you every time, how long did it take for you to pivot away from it or stop doing it or whatever? He could probably give you a really clear idea of that. If you ask me how long did it take, I'll be like, I, I don't really know. There was a zigzagging around and a meandering around on purpose where we were just looking for bets. There's like five other bets we have. There's one bet we even built before we completely pivoted that we haven't launched, but it's like pretty awesome actually, but it's just not as good as what we got into. And it didn't have the product market fit like we found with what we're doing now. But that just goes to say that like, I think there are styles. Discipline is extremely important and discipline when it comes to the process, but you want to be able to inform your own intuition. You want to also be data informed, not just data driven. So a lot of people might hear Brian's process and think he's fully data driven, but even him, he might be less than me on the intuitive side or, or, you know, artist side of this for this, but like 
he still got some percentage of that, right? Like, and, and then that's what allows you to like make a call with less data, less information. And in startups, you're always trying to make these calls with the least amount of information possible to be able to make the best amount or the best call possible, which I know is a little bit of a weird thing because a lot of people want lots of data. I think Brian f- falls in the camp of wanting extreme amounts of evidence for something. I'm definitely almost completely on the other side where like I will fill in the gaps, but that can lead me wrong too. So I work with someone, Marie, who has a very strong bend. If I'm like 50-50 on evidence and intuition, she's probably more like 70-30 on 70% evidence, 30% intuition. And that gives us a pretty good balance for, for when I'm crazy about an idea I don't get to do it. We don't get to do it unless there's a a certain evidence hurdle we pass, right? So one thing that we kind of think about is like, I think about it in the context of the size of the decision, right? I think Belfort does what you're describing too. It's just when he's trying to figure out his next company, he's looking at it as like, this is a 10-year decision. It's a lot of money decision. So he's going to like be very fastidious about it. And I think Drift did this. We've mentioned Drift and Cancel and Elias, like building four different products, killing three of them, and then deciding on this one. So- my question for you is, is like, and, and the way we describe this, by the way, when we talk to folks about pricing is like, well, if I'm going to make a $10 million decision, I'm going to do more research than if I'm going to just like decide what maybe a search ad copy should be, right? I always struggle with the qualitative, quantitative, like push and pull. And I guess you could kind of throw in the intuition piece in this as well. So like, if I'm trying to like figure out a new product or a new feature for a product, it's like, well, I have my intuition. I'll start with some mocks. I go talk to 10 people, they give feedback, I adjust my mocks, go forth, blah, 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 blah. And then there is the leap, right? Like, is that essentially give or take a bunch of details, like how you think about it? Or like, how do you think about this with a new feature, a new product, et cetera? With a product, any given time, there's something specific you're trying to solve for, or you should be trying to solve for. You just might not know what that is. So I'm actually hunting for that. And I'm using data and my intuition to figure that out. And a lot of times it's just very obvious when you think about a business and what the business does and what the product actually does for people and what the value you're trying to deliver is. So I think a good example of that would be like Zapier. They have found that doubling down on basically a switch that moves data around from one place to another, but it's like kind of like a switch And what I mean by that, I call it a switch because it's not a reservoir. And and they've made a deliberate decision to be a switch and not a reservoir. And I'll explain a little bit more about the decision and the difference there, which I might have taken a different route if I were them. But they basically kept going on the quantity of switches, amount of apps they connect to, and this one specific thing, which is once you connect, things going forward change and get plumbed around. But anything that's historical information, which would be more like a reservoir, not a switch, is completely off their radar. And that whole set of use cases where it's like, I have data sitting in one place and I want that data moved to another place or copied to another place, they don't solve for you. And I think that was a very and has been a very deliberate decision, partly because I think the tech hurdle of the reservoir is much different and much harder than the hurdle of building a ton of integrations with simple switches. But if you paid attention to people like me that were talking to those crazy people, me being crazy too, early on, I would have been like, yo, dude, where's my reservoir? Where's my reservoir? I don't want to integrate with you because the reservoir is what my customer wants to move around. 
It's their existing data that they have sitting in the tools. And I'm not fully up to speed on Zapier, but I doubt they've done the reservoir. In fact, I'm pretty damn sure they haven't. And it's very much a tool for switches, which is fine, but that's a call. That's a decision. It's deliberate. And this is why I go back to this is all product strategy, right? Because they could have done the thing I wanted and it probably would have been a different business. I don't know if it would have failed or not or not been as successful, but it would have been a different business. While doing what they did created a very specific core value prop that I'm sure most of their customers don't think about the thing that I care about, which is being able to move data around, or I cared about back then, which is being able to move data around. And this was back when we were working on Kissmetrics and had these use cases customers kept telling us. So we went to Zapier to see if they were willing to solve them or wanted to, right? Turned out no, but that was their decision. And, and so that, that's kind of an example of you could have gone either way, but you decided to go one way. And it's probably because of the things that they were hearing and the things that they needed to solve for and they wanted to solve for as a sequencing post MVP in their business. Because I caught them right when they were like post MVP. Uh, it was working, but they had options. I feel like they've talked about the reservoir version of the product for as long as they've been around, but they haven't jumped into it. And that is an interesting question, right? Because it's like they have the infrastructure now more than ever when it comes to team, product thinking, resources customer base to jump into an additional product or a different type of product, right? But they aren't. And is it like, because they can't see their hand in front of them, which I feel like is what we're going through with our sophomore slump idea right now, or is it because there's just so much other opportunity on the switch side that they're just going to like keep going after it, which might be both, right? But like, that's, that's the interesting struggle. And that's, that's why I want to bring it back to the struggle, because I don't think that we should treat this as like, a binary, you're going to get a perfect answer that's going to tell you exactly what is going to go on. And, and I think that people get too caught up in that so they end up not doing anything. So yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting thought at least. I know we're not going to be able to answer it here, of course, either. It's quite an interesting conundrum that we all kind of have to manage not with data, but with intuition more than data. Because there's a lot of directions you can go in these days. And I think more than ever, there are more and more directions you can go in. And the choices are not like absolutely clear, just like the thing we were mentioning, right? It's a little bit clearer earlier, if not a lot more clear. And now it's just completely upside down. I feel like we got a lot of, a lot of meat off this bone, but maybe didn't like, I don't know if we landed anywhere. I think we landed with like, it's a struggle, <laughs> you know, which, which I think is fine. There's some good tidbits here and there, I think in there. And maybe that's also like the perfect way to end this episode of like. I think it is for this topic because there is no answer to this topic. It is very personal, yeah. very specific to every company and every product that's out there. And that's where all those rice scores and stuff, which I, again, think are great, will only get you so far because there's something higher level you need to figure out, which is product strategy. And I think it comes back to what did you say? I'd rather be confident in my discipline than confident in my decisions. Confident in my decisions. Yes. As a product I like person. That. I yes. think that's going to be, I'm going to tattoo that on my face. I think that's a good one. Uh, I need to do this. I think same. that applies to just <laughs> anything with a build. Like if you're an executive business or a founder, I think it applies to most things, right? Yeah. Because most of the yes. time you're seeking yes. the outcome, which you have a lot, very little control over or like resources to go after it. And so, yeah, it's interesting. Okay. Cool. Let's land it. Uh, so to recap, we talked about some market data about how it's getting harder and harder to know what's valuable and to prioritize. We had a little rant on Henry Ford, nothing against Henry Ford. Uh, although I don't know if he was a good guy based on historical accounts at this point, but in terms of his quote, talks a little bit about road mapping and like being fastidious with your discipline and your process, but 
not necessarily going after the outcome. And then I think we ended with a couple of little frameworks and tactics, but really just coming down to it's hard and you're going to struggle with it. And that's the entire point because you're trying to create something from nothing as well as create something that like is valuable. And until we have, you know, their link all hooked up to our brains and we can perfectly measure things, we're still going to need to fill in the gaps with intuition and data as much as we can. All right. We'll see y'all next week. Later. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. Also, make sure to subscribe to and tell your friends about Tradeoffs, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. 